your back. That's when you face adversity from insiders, from family, from friends. This is what we'll see today in Nehemiah chapter 5. During the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall, a great injustice was taking place. But not from Israel's enemies, from Israel itself. Here we see that a famine has struck the land. And the wealthy Israelites are using the famine to take advantage of the poor. Israelites. Let's turn there now to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And we won't read the whole chapter at once. We'll kind of take it bit by bit this evening, but we will go through the whole chapter. So let's just look at verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, now the, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Let's pray this evening. Father, thank you for these words that are so profound. And we pray that this evening these words would fall on good ground. By your Spirit, they would fall on good ground. We pray that these words would break us and heal us and mold us and shape us and strengthen us and inspire us. Father, we don't want to go through the motions tonight. We don't want to be changed into the image of your Son. We pray that your Spirit would allow that. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, there is not enough food for the people of Israel due to the famine and due to the enormous work on the wall. In order to deal with this problem, many of the poor are mortgaging their fields and homes to get short-term cash to buy grain and pay their taxes. But things get so bad that many cannot pay back the loan, and they end up losing everything. Some of them are forced to sell their own children into slavery to pay back the lenders. These are desperate times. The poor cry out in verse 5, We are powerless. We are powerless. And those with power were treating them 
as business deals rather than brothers and sisters. And obviously, this goes without saying, this has undermined the mission of rebuilding the walls. I mean, what good are new walls when behind those walls the people of Israel are starving to death? Kind of defeats the whole purpose of the walls, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. You see, the devil doesn't just work through terrorist attacks. I know that's what many think of when they think of spiritual warfare. There's just these, these major frontal attacks by the devil. And while that is included, for sure, most of the time that ain't how it goes. Most of the time the devil works silently, quietly, behind the scenes. If he can get the people of God fighting amongst themselves, he knows they will get off mission. And that's exactly what's happening here in Nehemiah. Israel has been diverted from the mission. But how? So how did this happen? I think for one main reason. And that is a failure to be guided by Scripture. Period. I think the little whispers of the enemy just proved to be more enticing than God's Word. And so the wealthy and the powerful in Jerusalem were controlled by their desire for wealth more than they were controlled by God's Word. Let's have some real talk here for a second, can we? Can we just be with family tonight, right? Let's just have some real talk. Many conservative Christians today are more discipled by talk radio than by the Bible. They are guided more by political pundits than by Nehemiah or Paul or John or Jesus. A Christian's answer to the question how do we handle the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant? Should not come from talk radio. I'm sorry. It should not come from talk radio. It should come from God's word. Period. crazy that I have to say that, but it should come from God's word. The wealthy Israelites here are vi violating what is clearly written in God's word, which is to care for the poor. I had a professor in Bible college that said, you know, he'd read through the Bible many times, but he'd kind of read it on a fairly slow pace. Uh, you know, he had some different um, things that he found in reading plans, you know, the Bible in a year or the Bible in two years. And done that several times, and he said, you know, one time, uh, one new year, he decided to do something different. He wondered what would happen if he read the Bible quickly, very quickly, as fast as he could read it. He wondered what major themes would jump out. 
And so he ended up reading the entire Bible in four months. And do you know what he said the main theme that kept coming out in those four months? He said it surprised him, and it surprised the class too. You know what he said? He said it was God's concern for the poor. It kept coming up over and over and over and over again. If anyone should know that, it should be the Israelites. And Nehemiah does know that. Nehemiah is well aware of that. Nehemiah knows that in Deuteronomy 15, it says, There should be no poor among you. No poor among you. Not only were these wealthy Jews okay with the poor being among them, they were okay getting richer off of them. Nehemiah knows that in Deuteronomy 23, 19, uh, it says that God's people can loan money to one another, sure, but they are not to charge interest. But here in Nehemiah, the wealthy Jews are charging interest on loans to their brothers and sisters, and it is simply crushing them. It is crushing the borrowers. This is how disunity happens, folks. It's how it happens in a marriage, in a business, in a church. Disunity happens when God's word is not the guiding principle. When God's word is not central, disunity happens. When a church functions without the Bible at the center of the decision making, it loses any common reference point of authority and leads quickly to dissension and disunity. And the richest desire to become richer here in Nehemiah is more important them, to them than following God's law. Now the irony here is incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> what do I mean? Well now remember, these are the people who just came back from being exiled in Babylon. God had exiled these people to Babylon. They had just returned. Now, why did God exile them? For disobeying his law. This is unbelievable. They've just returned and are going right back to ignoring God's word. Right back to ignoring God's law. And they're more concerned about their pocketbooks than they are their brothers and sisters. Now, do we see any, any examples of this kind of injustice in the New Testament? Yes, we do. One such example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, there, the church is having the Lord's Supper in the context of a big meal. Okay? But because the rich have more flexibility in their schedules, they are getting there early and eating all the food and drinking all the wine before the poor could get there. The Apostle Paul is so upset about this. He writes a letter to them specifically about this issue that didn't make it into the Bible. We don't know exactly what that letter said. But based on his comments in 1 Corinthians 11, I have a feeling it wasn't a very fun read for the wealthy Christians in Corinth. Paul asks them in 
Verse 22 of chapter 11. Do you despise God's church by humiliating those who have nothing? Likewise, Nehemiah is furious at the injustice happening among his people. And so how does he resolve the situation? His response here is so instructive. It's incredible. What a guide this is for every Christian today. Nehemiah responds here to injustice in four ways. Number one, with righteous anger. Let's look at verse 6. Righteous anger. He says, when I heard the outcry in these charges, I was very angry. Nehemiah is not indifferent to the suffering of his people, to the suffering of the poor. He doesn't say, hey, y'all, we've got a wall to build here. It's pretty important. Can y'all just pipe down a little bit? Just, just hang in there, guys. At least let us get finished with the wall. No. Nehemiah is very angry. And this is a good anger. A righteous anger. Now many times our anger is not righteous anger. But Nehemiah's is. It's righteous. It is righteous to be mad about what is threatening the good of people and the glory of God. It's righteous. That's the first way he responds with righteous anger. Secondly, he responds with careful contemplation. Careful contemplation. Look at verse 7. He says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. Now, our anger, though it may start off righteous, goes awry quickly. I know for me personally, <laughs> this is the case. It goes awry quickly because of a lack of careful contemplation. But look at Nehemiah here. In verse 7, he says, I pondered these issues in my mind. This might need to be my life verse. <laughs> my wife said, Amen. This might need to be my life verse. Before taking action, what did Nehemiah do? Just chilled. Just chill, bro, for a second. I know you're mad. You're, you're mad for a good reason. Let's just take a minute. <laughs> Let's chill. Let's ponder things. Let's think them over. Let's breathe. Let's just breathe for a minute. That's the second thing, second way he responds to injustice. And number three is direct confrontation, direct confrontation. Nehemiah doesn't take his anger to Facebook. No passive aggressive tweets. Nehemiah goes directly to the people causing the problem. And he confronts them, how? With the truth of Scripture. Let's look at verses 7 uh, through 9. 7 through 9, he says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, 
You are charging your own people interest. So I called them together. I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Nehemiah is saying, we are people of slavery. Not only in Egypt, but in Babylon. We just got back. <laughs> we just got back. We just came out of slavery. We should be the last ones letting our people be sold into slavery. Why don't we fear God? Has the Lord not judged us enough already? Side note, I think one reason Nehemiah is such an inspiration for us is that Nehemiah feared God above all else. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs says. Nehemiah feared the Lord more than he feared the surrounding enemies. And when you fear the Lord more than anyone else, there's this strange peace and comfort that comes over you. And we see that in Nehemiah through this whole ordeal in this book. The reason he is able to be so at peace and so confident is because he really doesn't care what the enemies say or what they do. He's not afraid of them. He is afraid of the Lord. And this is the point he's bringing out here. Do you people not fear God? This is unbelievable. Lastly, number four, the fourth way that Nehemiah responds to injustice is with holy restoration. With holy restoration. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Again, back to Scripture. Now, this is incredible. <laughs> Who is the first person to repent and work at holy restoration to make things right? Nehemiah, the leader. The leader. Leaders lead the way in repentance. Husbands lead the way in repentance. Pastors and elders lead the way in repentance. Nehemiah takes it upon himself to use his own money, his own resources. And he says, this is not the time to take advantage of our brothers and our sisters. This is the time to serve and bless them. And I will be the first one to do so. I'll be the first one to do so. And so Nehemiah not only calls on the wealthy to stop the injustice, but also to make restitution. 
Look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. This is awesome. I mean, you could have easily imagined a fight breaking out here. You don't mess with the man's pocketbook now. This is incredible. <laughs> Their quick response to do this. It could easily have been much, much worse. But they repented also, like Nehemiah, and made restitution. Why? Well, I think it's because God was at work here. God was at work to restore the broken. God was at work for justice. The wealthy said, we will give it back. We will make things right. That's pretty rare <laughs> to hear that from anybody. And then they go even farther. They say, we will make an oath. We will make a promise in front of the priests and in front of the people that we will not do this again. And then Nehemiah gives a vivid illustration to drive his point home. Look at verse 13. He says, I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah is a man guided by one central thing. God's word God's word and because of Nehemiah's biblical response to this situation what how did it end with worship it ended with worship you see at this the whole assembly said amen and praised the Lord there is celebration God is receiving glory from what was an awful, awful injustice. This is what happens when believers are guided by Scripture and work for the good of people and the glory of God. And when their leaders repent, when things are going south, Let this be a guiding principle of life's journey, church. I pray that it will be. Let us fight injustice with the Bible as our guiding light. Let us work for the good of our city and the glory of our God. And let us repent when we screw that up. This last section of Nehemiah continues this same point. And it's a powerful example to me, to our staff, to our elders, and to anyone 
in Christian leadership. Let's look at it together. Verses 14 and 16. 14 through 16. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Great leaders lead by example. They never ask others to do what they themselves are unwilling to do. One of the reasons I was so attracted to this church was that the elders and the staff here are devoted to Scripture. Scripture is the guiding light here. And they are devoted to the work of the kingdom. Even under adverse conditions. These men are willing to do whatever it takes to reach the world with the gospel. Through leadership transitions and building transitions and through a pandemic, they stayed. Would have been easy to bail, but they stayed. And they just kept on working. Working for the kingdom, working for the good of people and the glory of God. That was really enticing to me. And that was really exciting. That's the kind of team I want to be on. That's inspiring to me. Because I put myself in their shoes and I thought, hmm, I wonder. I wonder if that's what I would have done. I hope. I hope I would have done that. <laughs> but I know that they did. And that's a team I want to be a part of. And that excites me about life's journey and its future. It does. Sean excites me. Blake excites me. All the leaders here really excite me. It would have been so easy to bail. And you didn't bail. And so here we have Nehemiah. At his own expense, serving his people. Just like our leaders here did. At their own expense, they served this body of believers. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. So, at Nehemiah's own expense then, 
Remember, he's not taking a salary. He's not receiving any of the food normally allotted for the governor. So at Nehemiah's own expense, he paid for 150 people to eat for days and days to ensure that goodwill and unity continue to reign in Israel. That's a leader. That's a leader. For all his time as governor, he refused to take a salary because he wanted to honor the Lord and he was afraid it would hurt the poor. He was afraid it would end up too much of a burden for the people. At this time, the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem had a great governor, a great leader. Probably why there's a book in the Bible with his name on it. They had a great leader. But you and I have a better one. We have an even better one. You see, you and I were in far worse condition than Jerusalem. We were spiritually broken down. We were spiritually bankrupt. Because of our sin, we owed a debt to our Creator we could never pay. But we have a leader. We have a king who redeemed and restored us. Not at the cost of his wallet, but at the cost of his life. We have a leader who lived to, to love and serve us, even unto death. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me ask you a question. What makes a person generous? What makes a person generous? What motivates them? Well, I don't know about everybody. I don't know about all generous people. But I know that if somebody interviewed Nehemiah and asked him, why are you so generous? I know what he would say. He would say, because the gracious hand of God is on me. Chapter 2, verse 18. Nehemiah, the gracious hand of God is on me. You see, the more you understand the extravagant generosity of God on you, the more you will be extravagantly generous toward others. Those who receive grace show grace. Those who receive mercy show mercy. Those who receive forgiveness show forgiveness. Now, I admit that oftentimes I struggle with generosity. I do. Treasuring too much my time and my money. And so, if you're in the same boat with me tonight, and you struggle with generosity, let us repent. And let us remember our generous Savior. 
who suffered and died to bless us with the infinite riches of his kingdom. Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. He gave it all away for you and for me. And though we have been unjust, though we have all been ungenerous, and though we are all sinners, our sin has been forgiven by the precious blood of the Lamb. If that is true, then let us then celebrate our Savior's generosity. And let, let us let His generosity inspire and empower us to bless and serve our neighbors, even our enemies. Let Jesus' great service toward us help us serve our city and help us work for the good of people and the glory of God. As we look back on Nehemiah's illustration, do you remember the illustration he used? He took his, the folds of his robe and he shook them. In verse 13, he says, I, I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. You know who failed to keep the promise and the covenant of God? Everybody. Everybody. The Israelites. You. Me, everybody, we fail. But we were not shaken. No. The Father's Son was shaken in our place. He bore the judgment that Nehemiah referenced here. In verse 13, in our place, because of his great love. Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being shaken. Thank you for being judged. Thank you for becoming poor. so that we might become rich in you. What a Savior we have. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would become our inspiration 
and our power to love and serve others. To deal with justice and to be generous toward our neighbor. Lord, we cannot and we will not do it under our own power or decisions. And so we ask that you, your spirit would come and move inside of us. Move us through these words and through your gospel to empower us to be salt and light everywhere we go. What a savior you are. What an inspiration you are. Lord, we look to you for everything. In ourselves, we have nothing. But in you, there is everything. Help us as we leave here to look to you for justice. To look to you to see what it looks like. To be generous. And let us not be distracted by things of this world and moved by worldly philosophies and ideas, but moved instead by your words and by your love. What a love we have in you, Jesus. What a love we have. Please let us leave here tonight in that love. Letting it just wash over us and in us so that it might change us, so that we might not leave here the same way that we came in. And Lord, it's in your name always that we pray.